0: In 1968, Tanzania sent four men to the Summer Olympics in Mexico City. Three of them were runners, and the fourth one was a boxer. Their long-distance runner, John Stephen Aquari, was sent there to run in the men's marathon. He finished last. In fact, no last-place finisher in a marathon had ever finished quite so last as John did. John was never really likely to win the marathon to begin with, but his chances were completely dashed when he got caught up in a a group of athletes that were jockeying for position. He fell to the ground, gashed his knee, dislocated it, and smashed his shoulder against the pavement. Most of the observers, seeing his injuries, they assumed that he would be taken to the hospital and that his race was over. But instead, he received some medical attention, and then he returned to the track to continue running. His pace, of course, was much slower after that, but his resolve to complete the event remained intact. Eighteen of the 75 starters had already fallen out of the race, and he was determined not to end up among the ones that had been disqualified. By the time he reached the stadium, he was limping badly and the bandage around his leg was flapping in the breeze. But more than an hour after all of the other runners had finished the race, John crossed the finish line in last place, cheered on by only a few people that had stayed in the stadium after the sun went down. Later, he was asked why he'd kept running. And his response continues to speak to us today. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race, he said. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. Ladies, God doesn't just save us to start our race. He saves us to finish our race. For our good and his glory. There is a race that is set before us. And we are to keep running all the way to the finish line. There are three parts to every race, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Most people will agree that the toughest part is the middle. At the beginning, the runners have a lot of adrenaline, plenty of energy and lots of enthusiasm. They think, hey, I can do this. But as the race wears on, fatigue sets in and they start to grow weary. It's been a while since the race began and the finish line still seems like a long way off. So every step they take starts to feel harder than the one before. But finally they sense the end is drawing near. The finish line is just up ahead and they get that merciful second wind that propels them on to the goal. Christian life can be like that too. So for those of us in the middle of the race, what can keep us running? Same answer we've had to all of the questions we've asked This weekend, the answer to the question, again, is not so much a what as it is a who. Turn back to Hebrews 12, and this time we're going to look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Consider him, him being Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary. Or faint hearted. Oftentimes within scripture, repetition is used to emphasize a point. So, just as in verse 2, we're encouraged here again to fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider him in the Greek would be more like, by all means, give very careful attention to Jesus. Look at what he endured. His suffering was so great, so far beyond anything we might experience in our own lives. But he endured all of it. He persevered even though he knew the agony of what awaited him on the cross. And once there, he didn't climb down off the cross and walk away. Jesus is our ultimate example and encouragement. We cannot give up when we hit the first hurdle or any of the ones that come after that. We can't stay on the ground when we trip and fall. We can't walk out of our lane to the sidelines and just sit down. There may be times that we feel like doing just that when it all seems like too much. But quitting is not an option. In those moments especially, we must look to Jesus. We must consider him and all that he endured on our behalf. (coughs) We must remember that he is not only the author or founder of our faith, but he is also the perfecter, the finisher of it. He has paved the way, if only we will follow him. Why does the author of Hebrews point us to Jesus here? The end of verse 3 says, So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. And the literal rendering of that phrase is that you not fail through weariness, fainting in your souls. This race that we've been talking about for the last couple of days is not a race that we run with our legs. It's run with the heart, the mind, and the soul. It's a race not against other runners, but against unbelief. John Piper says, It is a race against temptations that would make us doubt God's goodness. It's a race for faith. John wrote in Revelation 14, 12, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Think back to Hebrews 11. Over and over again in Hebrews 11, we see the words, by faith. And then in verse 13 of that chapter, we read, These all died in faith. And there's the key. They all died still clinging to their faith in God. Most of those that we talked about, the ones that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, most of them had some significant falls in their races, but they didn't stay down. They got back up and they kept running, looking for something better, looking to the reward. Hebrews 11, 16, and 26 both tell us that. And that is why they all stand as examples to us of the endurance that we need to have. We will fall, but we need to get back up and we need to keep running, looking to Jesus as the ultimate, perfect example of endurance. Single target track, we press on. In the words of a song written by Irish pastor John Monsell, he said, Run the straight race through God's good grace. Lift up thine eyes and seek his face. Life with its way before us lies. Christ is the path, and Christ the prize. It'll be hard to keep running the race of faith if Jesus isn't worth it to us. It's not enough to just believe true things about Jesus. We have to believe that he is worth following at all costs. He must be our treasure. If Christ is not our focus, we will grow weary and our souls will faint. Christ is our hope in this race. We know from verse 2 that Jesus had a hope in his race that motivated him to endure. We talked about it yesterday morning. What was it? It was the joy set before him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Great joy, inexpressible joy, having defeated death, having redeemed a people for himself, completing what God the Father had asked of him, and then returning to the eternal presence of God. Looking ahead to all of that is what helped Jesus to endure the pain of his life on earth. These things were the reward that awaited him. And there's also a reward awaiting each of us on the other side of the finish line. There's a hope set before us, and God wants us to hold fast to that hope. My desire as I have prepared for this retreat has been to share with you all the need for our endurance, and hopefully to leave you encouraged for the race that is set before you. But I want you to see that God himself desires that we be encouraged to persevere, to run the race with endurance. It's really an incredible thought that God desires to encourage us to persevere. But that's really what everything that we've talked about since we got here. It's all, God, all of God's word points to that. All of God's word is meant to encourage us to do that very thing. But when we really think about it and really let the, that thought sink, sink in, that God desires to encourage us, it can really help us see God's love for us in a new way. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 6. If you haven't figured it out by now, Hebrews is really such a rich book. There is so much good in here, so full of treasure. In chapter 6, starting in verse 17, we read, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God desired to show more convincingly. This tells us that God had already given us enough, but he desired to give us more, to utterly and completely convince us. He had already given us an infallible promise that was and is absolutely trustworthy. But then he added to that an oath, an oath based on himself, God who cannot lie. God desires to prove to us the hopefulness of our future. We started out our time here with me asking you if you ever felt like you had no hope or you struggled to have hope. God wants to convince us of the hopefulness of our future. And it says he desires to. He didn't have to. He wanted to. He desires to do that. And how encouraged does God want us to feel? verse 18 says that we might have strong encouragement in the Greek strong means strong think about that word as it comes from our great God the strong encouragement that he desires for us it's encouragement for us to hold fast that's to persevere to hold fast to the hope Set before us. So we see that God has set a race before each of us, but He's also set a hope before us. And He desires that we have strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope. That hope, that reward, is the prize that awaits us if we persevere. Paul tells us that in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, and we've mentioned this verse before. Continuing the metaphor of running the race, or of running, in verse 24, Paul says, But do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Remember again that Paul is likely drawing this illustration from the Greek games, or in this case it might have been the Isthmian games which were held in Corinth every two years. His readers would have been very familiar with the training that the athletes (coughs) went through to prepare for those competitions. Those games were like the Olympics of our day, and we've all heard stories of the kind of training regimens that our Olympic athletes go through. The discipline both within themselves and that which is imposed upon them is really all-consuming. They do what they do, and they do what they're told to do, because they want to win. Winning is their goal. Paul wanted to win. He was committed to winning. And we need to be committed to winning. Raise your hand if you consider yourself to be competitive. Raise my hand first. I might should say, raise your hand if other people consider you to be competitive. I know because I know some of you pretty well, just how competitive you really are.
1: I'm sorry about that.
0: my name up there. Much of my adult life has been lived in a house full of competitive people. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that our kids get it from their dad. I have never really seen myself as competitive. Um, I do like to win, and I don't like to lose, but it's a game, right? I mean, how important is it? But studying for this weekend has really made me rethink this whole idea of being competitive because the Christian life is not a game. Paul wanted to win it, and as I shared with you guys Thursday night, I desperately want to win it. I want to win at this race. But there's one thing to note here. Paul says all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. The reason there's only one winner in this race is because each of us run our own race. We don't compete against one another. We aren't running or competing against other runners. Our competition is against Satan it's against the pull of our own flesh scripture calls it the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and then there's the pull of society and our culture all of these things can be like a ball and chain tied around one or both of our legs holding us back as we run these are the things we have to fight against Satan, society, ourselves and the unbelief that we've spoken about. In fact, we don't run against one another. We need to help each other, like we talked about last night. We need to help each other to cross the finish line, arm in arm, if necessary. That's why Hebrews 3.13 tells us to exhort one another every day, every day that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our encouragement to one another in this race to obtain the prize is essential. Back to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has just said, run that you may obtain it, to obtain the prize. Then in verse 25 he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Paul says here that the athletes do what they do to obtain a perishable wreath, one that's going to burn. It's not going to last. But we run with endurance to obtain an imperishable prize. A glorious reward, one that will never perish but will last for eternity. Paul says here in verse 25 that in order to do this we must practice self-control in all things. And that takes us back to Hebrews 12:1 where we were exhorted to lay aside every weight. And the sin that clings so closely, it's the same idea. We cannot indulge in anything that hinders us in the race, whether it's good or bad, if it impedes our growth in godliness. We need to lay it aside. Both Paul and the author of Hebrews were convinced that it is all about a total commitment to win. It is those who truly commit to the race that will win in the end. Paul also says in verse 26 that he doesn't run aimlessly. He has an eye, his eye fixed on the treasure, and his treasure is Christ. Our example is Christ Our aim is Christ our goal is Christ and our reward is Christ the race is more is about more than our faith it's about the object of our faith Paul didn't run without aim he ran to Jesus can you imagine a race where the runner ran without aim, where he just ran willy-nilly wherever he wanted to go. That would look kind of ridiculous, and it would be really hard to determine where the (laughs) finish line was in a race like that. He'd be running like he really didn't care anything about winning the race, and sometimes that's how we act. We act like we don't really care all that much about winning the race. John MacArthur writes, This is why the armor of the Christian begins with the belt of truthfulness, which is sincerity. If you don't care about winning the battle, you're not going to win. Above all, in any kind of conflict must be the total desire to win. Now, Paul knew this, and he had this kind of determination. He never pursued comfort. He never pursued money. He never pursued popularity, respect, position, or the lust of his flesh. He pursued to win for God at all cost. And he says, I even beat my body into subjection. I discipline my body. I restrict some of those things that are going to hinder my running, and I run that I might win. We have to care about winning the race. We have to care about running to win for the cause of Jesus Christ. and We have to care about it more than we care about other things. Jesus Christ must be everything to us. It can't be something that we just add to our already busy schedules on Sunday morning. Paul says he disciplines himself so that he might win last night we talked about some of the disciplines runners in the Christian race need to cultivate in order to win. Knowing God is the goal of those disciplines. Reading, studying, meditating on God's word, praying, and being involved in the life of the local church. In addition to knowing God, these disciplines are a means to help us grow in godliness as we actively practice them in our lives. We don't become more like Christ by being passive. It doesn't work that way. Our hearts will not become more holy by chance while we sit around just waiting for it to happen. D.A. Carson wrote, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, or delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. These are the natural inclinations of all of us when we are left to ourselves. There was an important phrase at the beginning of that quote that I hope you didn't miss because it's fundamental to where we're going this morning and where I want to leave you guys. So I'm going to read the first two sentences again. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, or delight in the Lord. Apart from grace-driven effort. What's Carson saying there? He's saying that without God's grace impelling us to exercise these disciplines, we would not gravitate toward them on our own. God's grace is the impetus that causes us to get up in the morning and head to the spiritual gym, so to speak. Flip in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Starting in verse 6 of this chapter, Paul is giving this young pastor, Timothy, some crucial instruction for his own life. In Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians, we've seen the authors use athletic metaphors to describe the Christian life, and Paul does the same again here. In the second half of verse 7, Paul says to, to Timothy, Train yourself for godliness. The word train is the Greek word gumnazzo. And that's where we get our English word gymnasium from. It means to exercise vigorously in any way, either the body or the mind. Paul is calling Timothy to a spiritual workout. And he goes on to say to Timothy in verse 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, and also for the life to come. So Paul deems the spiritual workout more important than the physical because it holds great value not only for this life, but for all of eternity. Now look at verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. For to this end we toil and strive. The end that Paul is talking about here is godliness. It's our sanctification. For our own sanctification we toil and strive. Becoming like Christ involves a lot more than letting go and letting God. We cannot be passive in our pursuit of godliness. It doesn't happen that way. In the Greek, toil means strenuous labor or hard work. And strive is the same word that we get agonized from in English. It comes from the same root as the word race in Hebrews 12.1. These are strong words. What Paul is saying here is that training for godliness is not a cakewalk. It's not a cushy, low-impact workout. Spiritual disciplines call for serious commitment and a no-pain, no-gain effort. Training ourselves for godliness is serious work. It's a workout, a strenuous workout. But life is already busy, right? We all have our lives already filled with other things, whether we're married or single, working, homeschooling, taking care of our homes, raising children, whatever, life is full. Then we're confronted with these disciplines that we need to cultivate, and it feels overwhelming. It can make the Christian life feel like an exploding day planner with a never-ending to-do list. So the temptation becomes that we see these disciplines as things we must practice in order to earn God's favor or to meet a certain standard of performance before God. The problem then becomes that we do these things, if we do them at all, we do them out of a wrong motivation, just to check off the list. And that kind of uh, going about it in that way really stunts our growth toward godliness more than it aids it. Growth doesn't come from rigidly following rules. It occurs as our relationship with God grows and we learn to love Him more. And that happens as we spend time in His Word and through prayer, our communication with Him, we learn to submit our will to Him when we obey Him. It requires daily effort in the disciplines that we talked about last night. But the idea is not that we must do these things to earn our way across the finish line. Glenna Marshall explains in her book that building these habits into our lives will aid us in knowing and enjoying Christ. Knowing and enjoying Him now, so we'll still be knowing and enjoying Him. 10, 20. 30 years from now, or until we cross that finish line. We don't practice these disciplines to earn God's favor. If we are in Christ, we already have his favor. We've already been reconciled to God at the cross, we are his children. The spiritual disciplines are not meant to be a form of bondage, they are gifts. They're gifts that He has given to us. Gifts of God's great grace. Freely given to us to help us to persevere. These habits, when cultivated, build our endurance. And instead of looking at them as chores hanging over our heads, waiting to be checked off for the day, we need to see them as the gifts that God intends them to be as a means of grace that he has given to us for our spiritual good and for his ultimate glory. How then, in the midst of the busyness that is this life, do we persevere in these habits? And beyond that, how do we run the race with endurance? Endurance. So finally, we get to the big answer, the answer we've all been waiting for. Here it is. Are you ready for it? Yes,
1: yes. We can't. Yeah, you're like, really? After the last
0: day and a half, that's all you got? We can't? Nope, we can't. Not in our own strength. We would not continue we would not remain faithful we would not stand firm we would not hold fast we would not persevere we would not endure and not only would we not but we couldn't even if we wanted to but the good news is is that none of this is up to us to do on our own we can't but God can and he will he desires to go back to Philippians one six. Paul says, "I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ." God began the good work, and God will complete it. So this begs the question that Glenna Marshall asks in her book: Do we persevere? Or does God persevere us? And the answer to that question is yes. We just talked about our growth in godliness being our sanctification. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.12 to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. But then he goes on to say in the next verse, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we're commanded to work out our salvation, to persevere in faith while recognizing that it is God who works in us to do those things. Marshall says, any desire to be holy, any inclination to obey, any hope anchored in Him comes from Him and is initiated by Him, we obey God and credit Him for our obedience. We can't do it without God. We wouldn't even desire to. The desire that we have comes from Him, which is all the more reason that He alone is worthy of our praise. Think back to what D.A. Carson said, that we would not gravitate toward godliness apart from the grace-driven effort. God's grace driving our effort. Mm-hmm. It is God who works in us both to desire it and to work for it. God is the one who placed a desire for godliness in each of us When He replaced our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And He continues to work in us as we ourselves pursue that godliness through the means of grace that He has given, both to will and to work. And why does it say that? It says, For His good pleasure, which is our good and His glory. One of the clearest passages showing us that God will give us all we need in this life and ultimately bring us to glory is Romans chapter 8. So let's flip back there if you would please. There is so much packed into this one chapter of scripture. We know from chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Let's get down and start reading in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Then Paul says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a lot of reassurance in that verse. These pains, these struggles, these illnesses, these heartbreaks, all of the suffering that we experience here whatever it is Paul says the glory of eternity with Christ will make all of this minuscule by comparison and I don't say that to belittle what any of us might be going through here in this life but we have a future hope that we must cling to one that will one day make all of this make sense Paul goes on to talk about the creation, all of creation groaning as in childbirth, waiting for the ultimate redemption of all things. He says in verse 24, For in this hope, the hope of eternal redemption, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? I hope that sounds familiar. Remember Moses in Hebrews 11? That he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Moses' hope was in him who he could not see. But that hope gave Moses the strength to endure. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for our hope with patience. Think back to yesterday morning when we talked about the Greek word for endurance, hupomene. We said this word carries with it the idea that our endurance involves patience, an active kind of patience, one that refuses to be deflected or distracted. So this verse says, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with active patience, working while we wait. Refusing to be distracted by the things of the world, we persevere. Isaiah forty thirty one tells us, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait patiently on the Lord will run and not be weary. I want you to hold on to that idea because we're going to come back to it in a little bit as we close this up. But let's go back to Romans 8. Paul goes on to tell us in verses 26 and 27 that we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. Then he comes to verses 28 through 30. John Piper calls this, this part of the chapter the most exalted of all scriptures concerning the absolute assurance believers can have in the face of Satan, sin, sickness, and sabotage. He says in verse 28, Paul says, in effect, we may not know how to pray, but we do know something. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God works everything everything for the good of those who love him and are called by him so I'm going to read starting in verse 28 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, al- he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This promise that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, this promise says John Piper, contains the entire commitment of God to do everything necessary for the eternal good of His people. Paul supports this massive promise with the assertion that beginning in eternity past, the foreknown, and extending to eternity future, the glorified, God is committed at every step of the way to bringing His people to glory nobody falls out every foreknown one becomes a predestined one every predestined one becomes a called one every called one becomes a justified one every justified one becomes a glorified one few things could be clearer or more glorious the mention of the called in this chain links back to verse 28 which is a promise to those who are called. That link, Piper says, helps us to see that what Paul is describing in this chain is the good he had promised in verse 28. God works all things for our good, and the good is conformity to Christ that we see in 29 and unfailing glorification in Romans 8.30. So our perseverance our conformity to Christ and our final glorification our crossing the finish line isn't up to us. As those who are called God has promised our glorification. It is because of his faithfulness and not because of our own. Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 23 and 24 may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it God's grace calls us and God's grace keeps us 1 Peter 1 Turn there please Sorry to have you guys keep flipping around Starting in verse 3 Peter writes Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ According to His Great mercy He has caused Us to be born again To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls God has caused us to be born again he has given us an eternal inheritance that he is keeping safe for us in heaven he is guarding us through faith for that eternal salvation that is ready and waiting to be revealed. And Peter tells us we can rejoice now even in the midst of trials and tribulations and suffering. Trials that are meant to test the genuineness of our faith. We can't see him, but like Moses, we persevere as seeing him who is unseen. All the way to that day when we will experience inexpressible joy. In glory. And as it says here, the outcome of our faith. Which is eternal salvation. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author addresses the superiority of the new covenant over the old God promised in Jeremiah 32:40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that's the new covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me so the new covenant tells us that God will not turn away from us and that he will not let us turn away from him either This new covenant was sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. It's done. John Piper says, In the new covenant, our assurance rests firmly on the sovereignty of God over our own proneness to wander. He says, If you are persevering in faith today, you owe it to the blood of Jesus The Holy Spirit who is working in you to preserve your faith is honoring the purchase of Jesus. God the Spirit works in us what God the Son obtained for us. The Father planned it. Jesus bought it. The Spirit applies it. And all of them infallibly. So, if our perseverance is guaranteed, if it's already a done deal, why does every book, almost every book in the New Testament, include some reference or encouragement or even command to us to persevere, to endure to the end? Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have come to share in Christ. If, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, if we are faithful, if we persevere to the end, it will prove that we have a share in Christ. Glenna Marshall writes, Faithfulness is expected from each of us from day one of our salvation until the end of our sanctification. Everyday faithfulness feels ordinary because it should be ordinary for the believer. It's expected, but it must be fed every single day to thrive. Faithfulness to Christ recognizes the miracle of salvation, but not only the miracle of salvation, but that it continues all the way through the miracle of sanctification. We are dependent upon God's grace for both. Though we employ the tools He's given us to remain faithful to Him, it is God's faithfulness that upholds our own. Perseverance until the end reveals that our profession of faith was genuine, that we really are children of God. And the opposite of that then is true as well. If we fail to persevere, if we do not endure to the end, we show that we never really were authentic children of God. That our faith was not genuine. But if we truly are His children, God has promised that nothing, nothing can come between us and eternity with Him. In His book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. So as Marshall writes, God will do the work of perseverance while we do the work of persevering. We see a call to this in Hebrews 10.23. Again, it's one of our hortatory passages let us hold fast the confidence i'm sorry the confession of our hope without wavering that's our persevering let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful that's god's perseverance of us but on that day when we finally cross the finish line and are with Christ for eternity, it won't be because of anything that we did. It will all be because of Christ's work on our behalf. It will be our great joy then, as well as it is today, to honor and glorify Him with all that we have. This is what Paul looked so forward to when he told Timothy in a second letter to him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness, the reward that according to Revelation we can then cast at Jesus' feet in praise, Mm -hmm. knowing that we only crossed the finish line because he carried us across. So we press on, we persevere, looking forward to that day. We have much to anticipate. We talked about it before all sorrows being wiped away, the consummation of the kingdom, being with Christ forever, the unity of all tribes and tongues and nations. That's hard to imagine, especially in light of the racial turmoil that we've seen in our own country this last year. But what a glorious thought. But we aren't there yet. We're still in the middle of our race, the hard part. We're still running. And so we wait. We wait with active patience. Just like we talked about earlier. Paul talks about waiting and patience in conjunction with perseverance repeatedly in his letters. To the Romans he said, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. He assured the Corinthian church that as they waited for the revealing of the Christ, God would sustain them, guiltless to the end. He went on to say, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then Paul said to the Colossians, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The author of Hebrews agrees with Paul. He writes in chapter 6 of Hebrews, verses 11 and 12, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. At the beginning of the book of the Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John goes on to recount being in the spirit on the Lord's day and hearing behind him a loud voice. The voice was that of Jesus and he gave John words to write to seven churches. Jesus commends several of the churches for their endurance. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus said, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter work exceed the first. And then to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may re- no one may seize your crown. Jesus is coming soon. Looking around us it's hard to think that he will tarry for much longer, but I'm sure people in other times have thought the same, and only God the Father knows for sure. But as we leave this place today and return to the daily busyness that we've talked about, the full lives that we all have, like the author of Hebrews says, let us not throw away our confidence, which has a great reward, for we have need of endurance. So let us be like the church in Philadelphia. Keeping God's word about patient endurance and holding fast to what we have as we run the race that God has laid out for us. Single target track on Jesus so that we don't grow weary and faint in our souls. Knowing that it is God who called us. And God, who will keep us for our good and for his glory. At the very back of our Bibles, just before the book of Revelation, there's a very short letter written by Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude addressed his letter to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept. Kept for Jesus Christ, or kept by Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In verse 20, Jude issues a call to perseverance, saying, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We'll close our time the same way that Jude closed his letter. Now, to him who is able to keep you, to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, oh God, thank you. Thank you that you are committed to keeping those that are yours. Thank you, Lord, that we are not strong enough to fall away when you are so resolved to keep us. God, as we read at the beginning of this weekend, all of Scripture was written for our instruction. That through endurance, And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Lord, please take the scripture that we have studied these past few days and use it. Use it in our lives to encourage us and to give us great hope for the future, Lord. Great hope as we persevere, hope in Christ and hope for Christ. God and then as that passage said grant us to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ that we may together with one voice honor you and glorify you Father thank you thank you for this time that we've had together thank you for being here among us. Thank you for the work that your Holy Spirit does in each one of us. God, I pray for each one here that as we go our separate ways today, Lord, that your word would not return void, but would do its good work within each of our hearts and each of our lives to encourage us to press on, to continue, to remain steadfast, Persevere to endure all the way, Lord, all the way across the finish line into your arms to be with you for eternity. Thank you, God, that you have made the way for that to happen, that you have already started the process in our lives and that you are faithful to finish it. God be at work in us causing us to be faithful to you causing us to remain Father I pray for safety today as we all travel thank you for your provision for each one of us Lord Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.